Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word. And we're grateful that it is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, enable us to hear it this morning. Enable me, Lord, to, to speak it. And may the name of Jesus Christ, who is the living word, be glorified. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, since 2015, we've sought to have a time at this time of year to address the depression, the darkness of depression that occurs for so many. We call it Blue Christmas. And no, it's not related to the Elvis song. Everyone gets infected with the darkness of depression. We may not always be able to identify the reason why we feel depressed, but we feel it nonetheless. Depression is, is sometimes referred to as the common cold of psychology. And if that's, the, if that's true, uh, just like a cold, where is the medicine that can bring you relief? The advent of Christ is that medicine. Fleming Rutledge in her book, Advent, the once and future coming of Jesus Christ. Don't you love that title? That is just a great title. She says every year, Advent begins in the dark. And that's true. And today, this third Sunday of Advent, it begins in the darkness of the wilderness in Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10, or as in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, it's against the backdrop of oppression, fraud, and murder of the righteous. You see, Isaiah paints us a picture with words. He gives us these nice word pictures that's poetic, you know, and, and James, he just drops the hammer. Here it is. Here, this, it's oppression. It's fraud. It's the murder of the righteous. You might say, well, Merry Christmas to you too, Pastor. Now, I just want to keep it real so that we, we might fully appreciate what Christ's coming to the world again means. Yeah, we have a holly jolly Christmas, but that's not what Christ's Advent is about. We're not merely waiting for Christmas. We're waiting for the Lord's second coming. And the advent, the second coming of Christ, is the medicine for the darkness of depression. But like all good medicine, you must wait for it to take effect. Now, don't you love it when you have an ache or, or a pain and, and you take the medicine that's been prescribed for you and you can begin to feel it work? In fact, if it doesn't work, you start doing the other thing. This is not helping. And if the advent of Christ is the medicine to relieve us of the darkness of the wilderness, to remove the oppression and restore what the fraud has stolen and avenge the murder of the righteous, then it would be wise for us to know what to do while we wait for the medicine to work. Our text here in James 5, 7 through 10 teaches us what we need to do while we wait. Scripture commands us to establish our hearts while expelling grumbling and embracing past examples of the prophets since the purpose of the Lord is extremely compassionate. That's 
That's the outline. This is point number one. Establish your hearts. Look at verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And see, establishing our hearts requires submission to, uh, to a process and positive, proactive waiting wherein you understand the value of what it is that you're waiting for. And this is learned as we see how the farmer waits. Now, let me say that again because you might have missed it. Establishing our hearts requires submission to a process and positive, proactive waiting wherein you understand the value of what you're waiting for. Now, that's really an interpretation of the verse that we just read. James invites us to lift our eyes and pay attention to the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting for the early and latter rains. He commands us to pay attention and discern the farmer's actions. Now, see, far farmers are people of faith. See, only one farmer said amen. <laughs> see, <laughs> see anyone, anyone who eats is participating in the fruit of a farmer who had faith. An atheist who sits down to enjoy mashed potatoes is receiving the fruit of a farmer who has faith. The farmer has faith that the early rains will make the ground ready to receive the seed, thus allowing the process of germination. The farmer also knows that the late rains come to nourish the crops, aiding their maturity just before harvesting. You see, the farmer, the farmer must have faith in the process. He can't be nervously watching the clouds for rain. He plants and in faith expects God to provide the rain. He also doesn't go out and dig up the seed during the, the germination to see how it's progressing. That would kill it. No, he waits, he waits for the plant to mature. The process requires faith and waiting. So establish your hearts with faith. Establish your hearts. That this is, this is where your heart should stand. Here's where, here's where, where, where all that you are made up of all, of, all that's at the center of you is standing right here in the, where God has determined seasons and, and has designed the process of our maturation to work in a particular pattern. Establishing your heart is to submit to the design and to follow the pattern. And what precisely makes the fruit precious is the proactive waiting. See, the farmer understands the value of what he's waiting for. Food that feeds his family. Food that he can take to the market and make more money to buy more seed so that he can feed his family and not only feed his family but he feeds other families see, so, see aren't you grateful that the first man was a farmer <laughs> yeah as you so as you establish your heart seeing how the farmer waits you can understand the value of waiting for the coming of the lord so here's a question what value, what value do you place on the coming of the Lord? See, it's the reason, it's the reason for establishing our hearts. 
See, Jesus' coming inspires an endurance that's not content to sit idly in passivity, but it is positively proactive because you understand the precious fruit that is to come. So establishing your hearts is just one thing to do while we're waiting. An established heart is an established heart ought to affect the speech of our mouths, helping us to, point number two, expel grumbling. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You see, the anticipation of Advent calls for adjustments. If we were being patient, Establishing our hearts that we do that then, then we do so with some expectation of transformation, don't we? Yeah, we don't we don't we we're, we're not expecting to remain the same. We're expecting we're expecting some change to take place in us and in the world around us. So the transformation starts with the heart being established, submitting to the design and pattern, counting how valuable Christ's coming is to the earth. And we so this, it feels odd that then the next thing is we're commanded to not grumble against another one. Another. Don't grumble against one another, family. I mean, that's what, he, that's, that's what, that's what James is saying. That that's, the, that that's the next thing? You would expect something else. You know? But the Greek, word, the Greek word for grumble, it occurs six times in the New Testament, and it denotes dissatisfaction with a situation or, or a person. And here are a couple of examples. There, like I said, it's, it occurs six, and, there, and then there's variations of the word. But, but there's, here's just a couple of examples of the usage of the word. Jesus grumbles in Mark 7, 34. When he healed, you know, don't you feel good? Jesus grumbles too. You know, but why he grumbles? He grumbles when he heals the deaf mute man. The verse says, and looking up to heaven, he sighed, grumbled, that's the word, and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. You see, Jesus is dissatisfied with the man's malady, so he heals the man. Hallelujah. In Romans 8.23, we grumble while we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. The verse says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan. That's that word, grumble, inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And see, these are two examples of grumbling, that, that, that grumbling that's acceptable to express dissatisfaction. But James commands us to not grumble against one another. We're not to express dissatisfaction with another member of the family. See, that's astonishing. Because usually we feel it's our right to complain about another sister or brother. We have freedom of speech. James says, don't do it. Why? This dissatisfaction of a brother or a sister is a judgment on them. It's a devaluing of them. You see, all oppression and fraud and abuse and, and murder or genocide begins with a grumbling. It begins with a grumbling dissatisfaction of your neighbor. Family relationships are, are plagued with grumbling against one another. Politics. Nobody grumbles about that, dude. No. Politics often makes us grumble against one another. Depression often lingers because of the internal grumbling about yourself or how someone else has mistreated you or how they're mistreating others. Just, and it's this grumbling that just goes on and on. And grumbling is deadly to community. You can't, you can't 
grumble about someone and love them at the same time. I believe James says that in another place. See, James says, don't make judgments grumbling against a member of the family of God so that you may not be judged. Kind of sounds like his brother Jesus, doesn't he? <laughs> on the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Behold, he says, the judge is standing at the door. The Lord is the judge, and he's ready to judge. And James means for us to feel the intensity of the Lord's coming. John Calvin said this, he said, No bridle is more suited to holding back our headstrong temper than the thought that our imprecation does not go off into the air, but close at hand, there is the judgment of God. Yeah, feel, feel what Isaiah 35, 4 shows us as both the vengeance and the salvation of God. Say to those, he says, who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You see, is the, is the salvation that Christ brings to you different from the salvation that he brings to your brother or sister? No, it isn't. Christ died for the person you're grumbling about. And the way we, we talk about each other in the family of God is not with dissatisfaction, but we grumble. We grumble. Here's good use of grumbling. Grumble together about the hope of salvation that awaits us when Christ returns. Yeah, 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 Jesus is coming. Mm. Oh, yeah, we can't wait, I can't wait. Mm. Yeah, grumble, mm. murmur, mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus is coming, yes. They, they, grumble together. That's a great use of, of grumbling. Furthermore, though, our grumbling against one another, it lessens as we learn lessons from the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Therefore, we are, point number three, embracing past examples of the prophets. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Only the Christian receives the message of Jesus' coming with joy that enables them to face the darkness of suffering with patience. Only, only the Christian receives that message of, of, of Jesus coming with joy. See, reading this verse, we get a sense that the reason for the prophet's patience in suffering is because they spoke in the name of the Lord. That was the reason for the patience. The name of the Lord, his character, his faithfulness, his promises are all on the line when you suffer for speaking in the name of the Lord. And the prophets are worthy examples of waiting even when they don't receive, even when they didn't receive what they were waiting for in their lifetime. Listen to Hebrews 11, 33 and 39 as it describes the patience and, and the suffering of the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 
Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Does that sound like a letdown? Yeah, you like, where's the payoff? There they suffered all this. Why? Why didn't they receive what was promised in their lifetime? See, God has something better planned, something rooted in his character and goodness, something that will enable their hearts to our hearts to be established, something that will assuage the grumbling against one another, something that enabled the prophets to patiently suffer without receiving the promise in their lifetime, something that is predicated upon the truth that the Lord is extremely compassionate. Look at verse 11. This is number four, point number four. Behold, we consider those who, those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God is extremely compassionate. Now, the ESV doesn't translate it that way, but that is what the Greek word means. It means it's not just compassionate. He's extremely compassionate. Hallelujah. You see... And and so we didn't read verse 40 of of Hebrews 11 because it answers the question of why they didn't receive the promise in their lifetime. Because verse 40 says this, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, God provided something better for us, something that would bring us and them together, something that would make us complete Mature, perfect. What did God provide? Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. See, Jesus is the extreme compassion of God. Jesus is the mercy of God. Jesus fulfills the purpose of God. He is the God who comes and saves you, Isaiah 34, 35, 4. See, when Christ first come, with Christ's first coming, the medicine of his advent began to work. It's taking, it's taking effect. So apart from Jesus, there's nothing to establish your heart in. Apart from Jesus, there is no way to stop the grumbling against your neighbor. Apart from Jesus, there's no example worth emulating since it would only end in the grave. But through Jesus, God's extreme compassion is given to all whose faith is in Christ. Hallelujah. Do you know that the Lord's purpose is to be extremely compassionate and merciful? Do you know that? Do you believe it to be true of you? You don't know what I've suffered. I know what a lot of you are suffering. 
God is extremely compassionate. He is in, in his mercy is infinite. But do you believe it? And do you believe it enough to let it soothe your depression like taking in a deep breath of the aroma of eucalyptus to open your psychological sinuses? See, the grace of Christ brings changes, the, the, and it changes the way that we see ourselves and the world. We become positively proactive while we're waiting. I read a great article entitled, is Europe post-Christian or pre-revival? I just love I just love the juxtaposition of those two thoughts. You know, you know one's negative, the other's positive. You know, <laughs> yeah. Is it post-Christian or is it pre-revival? Yeah. The article talked about the five ways that they are seeing God move throughout the continent of Europe. And now I don't have time to do the five, but I'm only going to highlight the one: the church planting movement in the Europe in the Europe Missiological Report 2021. It said this: Latin American migrants have planted thousands of churches in Spain, Portugal, and beyond over the last 30 years. It's difficult to find a major European city that does not have a large Spanish-speaking and or Brazilian congregation. Chinese churches can be found almost everywhere. African-initiated Pentecostal churches number in the thousands in Britain alone. And then during the Lausanne Europe's 2021 gathering, there was an equipping of native-born Europeans to be more intentional in helping diaspora Christians reach the local populations and migrant, migrant leaders to contextualize so they can be more effective in reaching Europeans beyond people of their own nationalities. Yeah, yeah, see, someone laughed. And when, when you first saw this, I did the same thing because it's like, this is just so funny. And doesn't it sound like a, a vision similar to what we have as a church? Yeah, yeah. Is it similar to what God is doing in, 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 in us? See, it's amazing to me. It's amazing that, that the countries that were formerly colonized, that had formerly colonized, are now being evangelized by, they're evangelizing the generations, the children of those colonizers. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. Only Jesus can do that. <laughs> that's, that's only, only Christ can do that. See, God is at work transforming everything through Jesus Christ, setting it all right. That's why the old song would say, mm, everything's going to be all right when Jesus comes. Everything's going to be all right when Jesus comes. Yes, it's true. Everything is going to be all right when Jesus comes. And we get to participate in what he is doing. So I love Isaiah 35, 3 and 4 because it tells us to strengthen the weak hands and make the feeble and, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You see, the, and the, re, see, the, reason, the reason we can strengthen the weak hands is because on the cross, Jesus' hands were weakened by the nails driven through them. We can make firm the feeble knees because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' knees buckled as he fell to the ground 
feeling the weight of the judgment of our sin in the cup that his father had given him to drink. The reason that we can rejoice and be patient in suffering, yea, transforming our suffering is because in Christ, the vengeance of God toward our sin was transformed into grace. And the purpose of God in Christ is fulfilled since he will come and save you. Hallelujah. See, the reason the earth is transformed is because Jesus rises from the dead. The desert blossoms because of the resurrection. So when Isaiah says that there are streams in the desert, it's because those who believe in Jesus will have, John 7, 38, streams of living water flowing from their hearts. So do you see why, do you see why the advent of Jesus is the medicine for your psychological cold? He has come right to the center of where you live. Three times in this text, James has said, and he, po he points to the Lord's coming. And three times he were told to behold. Look at Jesus. See, he says, behold. Look at Jesus Christ. Let your hearts be established in what he promises. Process. Process your judgments through the word of grace and, and let and let it expel grumbling against your fellow believer. You see Jesus' return as the fulfillment of what the prophet spoke in the name of the Lord. He brings the character of God into your life. Hallelujah. Yeah. And discern, discern what are the implications of his coming back and, and rest in the extreme compassion of God. He has infinite mercies. You see, Jesus is relieving the darkness of the wilderness. His advent has brought light. Jesus is coming again, completes the victory, and delivers joy to the world. So may the Lord help us to see how the farmer waits. Let's pray. Lord, you hear our groans every day. Your ears are attentive to our grumblings. Because we wait. We wait for you. Precious fruit. We wait for you to come and do your work. And we pray, Lord, even so. Lord Jesus, come.